DollarShaveClub.com is a no-brainer for an incredible shave delivered right to your door. DollarShaveClub.com delivers high-quality razors right to your home for less than what you'd normally pay. There's no reason to deal with the hassle of going to the store to buy expensive razors when you can just join the club. Just go to DollarShaveClub.com and pick a razor that works for you from their lineup of amazing blades. That's all there is to it. Get a first-class shave with the executive razor, and with their Dr. Carver's shave butter, the blade gently glides through for the smoothest shave imaginable. Here's your chance to see why over 3 million members love Dollar Shave Club. Right now, you can get your first month of the club for as little as $5. After that, it's a few bucks a month. Dollar Shave Club is so confident in the quality and value of all their products, there's no long-term commitments or any hidden fees. There's no reason not to join. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash 10questions. That's one zero questions. 10 questions. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash 10 questions. Let's get on with the show. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two, all engines running. 10 questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. Today's guest on 10 questions is Tim Ross. Now, I made a show back in 2010 on the ABC called Agony Uncles, and Tim was literally the first person I approached to be on the show. I've been a fan of his since he was on Triple J with his comedy partner, Merrick Watts, and I followed him through his various radio and TV incarnations and felt that he'd be perfect for Agony Uncles, as he always had a hilarious and unique perspective on the Australian male. These days, he's all about architecture and design, having made the hugely successful ABC show Streets of Your Town while touring his live show, Man About the House, all over the world. I'll tell you more about the Rosso story as we go on, but as usual, I start by asking him when he was most happy. No, oh, I've never been happy. I'm a sad, sad clown. I'm the saddest clown. Um, I think there's a difference, sorry, there's a difference between... I, Calmness for me is the new happy. And so I think, you know, because happy can be so fleeting. And I reckon that, you know, I suppose so much of the happiness I feel these days comes from family, you know, kids jumping on top of me this morning, (laughs) um, which is adorable. But, you know, 10 seconds later, they just drive me nuts to the point where I'm like, the world's unhappiest person. Like my three-year-old this morning said to me, I'm trying to make him some toast. And he's, I don't want toast. I want acai. And I was like, what planet are we living on that I have a three-year-old who wants, I don't even know what acai is. Like it's this purple stuff. It's ice. It's like, you know, it's very trendy. And um, he's like Vegemite on toast or acai. And I was like, oh, what fucking planet are you on? Um, so this idea that you, there are moments of happiness, so there's no golden age where yeah. like, oh my God, when I was at high school, happy, not really, university at times, depending on um, yes. how I feel. Uh, but I, I, sadly, sometimes I think about where I'm at my calmest and most comfortable these days is when I'm performing because when I'm telling stories or public speaking or, you know, doing shows or, you know, quite, as I got older, I quite like a lectern. Mm. 
Like, <laughs> I'm literally have turned into the dad who'll keep talking at a, at a 21st now. And so I used to always, when I do events, go, I don't need the lectern, I'll take a microphone, you know, old stand-up comedian thing. And now, put that thing away wireless, hands on the lectern, and away I go. But the reason behind it all is, is that, <laughs> that, that, that this idea of karma is that the one time that everything sort of really stops me, I suppose, and and I'm sort of in my meditation state is when I'm talking. Yeah. When I'm and I'm not thinking about other things. I'm not stressed. I am in the zone. Yeah. And so there's so the joy of obviously being able to talk and people wanting to see me say things or hear me say things and pay money to see shows or whatever is part of that. And I like that, and they laugh or they're moved or whatever it is. But there you are, and you're like, mm. this is nice. You know, no one's coming at me. No one's asking me any questions. This is just me. <laughs> you know, it's like when you're, you know, if you get that moment when you're on a plane and it's just you and the movies or no one else yeah. and you and the book or whatever. So I like all that stuff. And I think there's, a, and and the therapists, I'm sure, would say that you're finding too much joy in your career. You know, that this is the thing. You know, your kids are only fleetingly making you happy, happy but the real thing that makes you happy is being on stage but it's always to be honest it's always been where i've been my most comfortable well yeah it's um because you are focused on one thing you 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 can't afford other other thoughts coming into your mind while you're actually talking and i also i also i very rarely do the same show and you know when yeah yeah, so like comedians have always you know all those great comedians that I love, you know, and I grew up watching in terms of my early career. Not, I didn't grow up, but you now those ones were doing really well around me, whether it was Fleety or Judy. Yeah, yeah. You know, their view about comedy was always, I'm going to, I'm going to, the the trick of it is to make it look like you're telling it for the first time, but it's the same every time. Mm. I've never been able to do that. And I, it, it used to worry me. And like Kit Warhurst, who I do my live show with, he, you know, he watches me all the time, and he he spent a lot of time with Hilsey doing the Spicks and Specs tour, and he watched Adam go out and do it the same every night. And then he goes, "You never do that," and I'm like freaking out about it, going, "Oh God, what is it? What is it?" And then you know, one of my kids was having some speech therapy for a while, and you know, while he's playing with some blocks, I was talking to the speech therapist about it, and I said, "What do you reckon this is? Why do I?" And she said, "It's because of your radio. All the time you didn't radio because you move things around all the time." Mm. and everything's a movable feast so it's not a skill that i actually developed it's a skill based on radio so fluid yeah and so i move things around in shows all the time to keep myself interested probably the other thing is is that you probably know this too if you're doing a play or whatever you're on the show and you do the same thing every night you can start thinking about other things while you're telling the story so when I, if I'm doing a show and it's like, here's my 20 minutes or here's my 40 minutes and it's the same as I do it every time, you're on autopilot and that's when you start, you're thinking about shopping or whatever it is, you're stressing out while you're on stage. It's the worst thing in the world. Yeah. So I kept, move the, move the pieces around so to keep this moment on stage when completely pure. I think it's smart and it also takes a lot of confidence to do that. Madness. Yeah. It's, it's stupid. Like it's absolutely stupid. And the only reason I can do it is it comes from the confidence of being in a duo, once being in a duo. Yeah, okay. So, I, you know, I used to be there and I'd be, you'd be the animal theatre with Mez and, you know, it'd be 2,000 people and then, you know, I'm on stage but Mez would be telling some story that on the first night would go for two minutes but by night seven it'd go for six. 
15, 20 minutes. And I know, you know, you could check out the girls in the audience and yeah. see what everyone's wearing. And then we started working by myself. And it's like, there is no downtime. In yeah, no, that's right. That's right, man. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's really interesting. Yeah. Because, yeah but, you know, yeah. I should say something about, you know, um, you know, there's beautiful times and beautiful life where you are these sort of moments of happiness. But what kills us all, isn't it, is that they're only, they're there. It's like, I'm in this lunch and this is fantastic with all my friends. And then, oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's right. And also a little bit of a hangover after each yeah. moment of happiness. And crying. Yeah. <laughs> Second question is, who would you like to apologise to and why? Uh, my mother. My... I, I, I'm a good son, but I, I feel really guilty about my times in my 20s and 30s where I just didn't see her enough or didn't call her. Or, and there's, there's a couple of times I remember, and not even then, like there's these moments that just... <clears throat> Uh, just sit there and I, I remember once it's a very obscure thing so sometime in the mid 1970s or late 1970s my brothers went off to watch the West Indian cricket team play a blind team in Mornington so this is where you had the ball with the bell yeah. in it and the blind guys were playing the West Indian team and the West Indian team had to have I, you know blindfolds on i was too young to go so i didn't get to go and i cracked it with my mother and said they're going to get lollies and i'm not going to get any lollies and then so my mother drove me down to the milk bar and she would never really normally do this then she bought me some lollies and then i complained that there wasn't enough lollies in the bag something my children do on a day-to-day basis but i felt so bad about it for years later and i think in my even it haunted me at night I think it was because my brother still had the I think I inherited the poster that they got you know right yeah yeah and so it sat there in my bedroom and I think it was like in my late teens or something I actually apologized to mum and she just laughed and said that's silly I can't even remember that but it just it haunted me and then through my 20s when I'm busy I'm out with my mates I'm doing all that stuff or I'm back from Sydney when I moved from Melbourne you know, I might go to Melbourne and see my friends and not tell mum that I was coming. I used to do one or the other. Ah, uh, yeah. Because I was sick of it. Or I'd go and see her and I was so hungover. All yeah. I could do was eat the roast and then... Yeah, yeah. Fall asleep. It's terrible. Mm. Like, and if, I, if my kids do that to me in the future, I'm going to be devastated. But then, yeah, I sort, yeah. then I sort of understand it. Like, my mother's always given me a hard time about putting on weight. Oh, right? yeah. She's a fat shamer. She's a doctor, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, oh, you're getting a bit fat. And I, I used to, it's always upset me. <laughs> and then the other day I'm looking at my oldest son and I'm thinking, you know, and he's, he's the blue eyes and his blonde hair and he's all tanned and delicious. And I was like, don't you fucking get fat. <laughs> <laughs> don't you get fat. But, yeah, I think, but my mother understands that it's part of it and that's that part of the journey of having children that your kids will... You know, they don't get good until about 27 with men. Um, they said not to marry a man before 30. Yeah. No way. Yeah. And so then, and so, she, she's fine with it, but it still, it still upsets me. Yeah. I've apologised. So the question is probably actually who have I apologised to? I've apologised, but I'm apologising again because I want 
part of me wants wants her to actually say, you know what, you were a bad son. Yeah. I want to hear it. I want to hear what she. I want to hear her say that, and then forgive me. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. You can find out more about Tim Ross's childhood with his new book, The Rumpus Room, which can be ordered through timross.com.au. No one really writes about the Australia of the 70s and 80s and 90s quite like Tim. He does for that era what Barry Humphreys did for the 60s and 70s. And we move on to question three. What is your greatest regret? Not taking grooming seriously. Um... I think I like I look back and sometimes think, why didn't I just get you know get your hair cut regularly? This old thing where you get your hair cut too late, not grooming the beard properly, you know, leaving it too late, not exercising enough in the twenties and thirties, um, smoking cigarettes for fifteen years. Um, the thing is, we were nineties, twenty somethings, and. I mean, that's really hit me recently. We didn't groom. It was, if you tried too hard, it was seen as... No one went, to the, no one went to the gym. No one went to the gym. What, you're lifting weights? You lift yeah, weights. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like some people would run. That's right. But that was like, that's because they haven't realised that they're not at school anymore and they don't have to anymore. <laughs> and then, <clears throat> then I got, you know, horribly fat and so I started exercising. But I think for me, I was really, um, my biggest actual regret was I... I didn't travel when I was in my twenties. Yeah, right. I took forever to finish university, and so I never went and lived in London and did that stuff. Um, no, I didn't travel through Europe with friends or anything like that. Uh, by the time I'd finished university, I was like twenty six, and I just my sort of career had kicked off then, and there was yeah. there was no time to go. Oh, I'm going to go and live in London, or I'll go and work at Triple J. I'll take the Triple J uh, yeah. option every time, um, and that was because I was just a, not a. Um, I wasn't a great self-starter. Took me forever to get my shit together. Me too. Um, but the other side of that is, and we always don't, we don't give ourselves credit for this, is that, you know, that time in the 90s, the, it was, there was no work around. There was nothing, no one was making anything. No. It was creatively amazing, but also really dire as well. Yeah. So there was, it was, it was a tough time. Um, and so if you've come up, like if you've got a, a generation of performers below us and below have only really known good times. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they don't have the darkness in, in their content. Yeah. So, you know, like people go, oh, you know, you're a bit of a dark comedian at times. You know, well, you're a product of everything. You're a product of, you know, if, if I'd started doing comedy during the mining boom, I'd be a very, very different person. <laughs> I'd be going, hey, look at my slides. How good's mining? You know, um, you know. Your one-liner comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we talked about this before. Is it's also we're of a generation too about um, who had private school guilt. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. So you almost had to pretend that you didn't go to a nice boys' school. Oh mate, I I, I lied about it for years. <laughs> but it's a funny thing. Even in the nineties, and this is a little a little different. Um, a mate of mine and I were at a party and a lot of beautiful girls there and we had to leave the party because we we're, were going to see Patterfinger, who I went to school with. <laughs> and uh, Patterfinger just got successful at the station. It was in Brisbane and they're on the nose because they were successful. Remember that, yeah. listeners, in the 90s? That if you're successful, you're fucked. Yeah. Um, so I, I foolishly said to these girls, oh, we're going to go see Patterfinger. And they went, oh, okay. 
and uh, we all said our goodbyes and left. And my mate just gave me a message, dressing down. Why did you say we're going to see Batman? <laughs> <laughs> Um, because it was, yeah, it was, it was successful, it was fucked. If you had money, it was fucked. And now you see not only what you're talking about with the darkness and the material, but you also see people in bands and in comedy who are successful in our generation packing shells at Safeway or mm. Woolworths now. Mm. Because it was, we weren't thinking about dollars at all in those days. No. No, and because um, there was... I can't think of anyone who truly was the success story. If there wasn't someone that you could look at and go, yeah. there were people who really, who were doing good things. And I suppose, uh, you know, it was probably only the working dog guys who were really. Well, you really... guys, and it was American Rosso and Martin and Malloy. Despite American Rosso's rapid success on radio, TV was what they were most passionate about, and their output was massive. There was Planet American Rosso on the Comedy Channel, American Rosso Unplanned on Channel 9, and the B Team on Channel 10. Radio was never really part of the equation for us. I think we were looking at it was TV was probably, yeah, oh, you yeah, know, yeah. If we do a sketch show or we can, you know, make it, it would have been you know, some version of a sketch or a sitcom would have thought of. And they weren't really commissioning a lot of those things at the time. Uh, Certainly nothing like there is today. Um, You know, and if they were, they were, it was a really big deal if you could get anywhere near it. So there was no real, there was no real avenue for it. You couldn't go, if I work really hard, I'll end up on, you know, it was like doing a spot on Hey Hey or something, which is nothing wrong with it. But, you know, um you know, that might be good because you could put it on your poster when you're playing at the Darva going, as seen on Hey Hey. Or yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was really, it was, it was sort of interesting. Um, and everything, everything, all the success was all, the scene it was always very much arts-based. Yeah. In terms of um, you might win one of those awards or something and then you might go to Edinburgh or whatever it is or yeah. getting a review or playing in good venues was probably more important to most people. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. No hard to come by. Mm. Um, question four was, what will you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life? Mm. Strangely enough, um, look, I think I'd like, to, I'd like to get some more travel under the belt where I go to places I want to go to, that not places that my wife wants to go to. Hence, I spent a week in Ibiza this year, which is... It was really, really, really not interesting. Um, anyway, um, me being an Instagram husband taking photos of her and, um, <laughs> at the beach and stuff. Um, I think it's hard. You sort of segment things. I think, you know, I'd like to be able to spend more time with my boys. I've got to make sure, I really want to make sure that they'd grow up to be decent young men. Um and so that's a priority for me. But we put so much pressure on ourselves as dads these days. You've got to spend more time with your kids. And it's not always practical. And they fucking drive you mental. Um, and, so, you know, this sort of, there's this yeah. real obsession with, um, you know, being present and what that means. Yeah. Like, you know, my dad was never present or whatever was it. I don't know. You know, they go, oh, you know, you're always on your phone. But, you know, my dad was always reading the paper. Yeah. It was no different. Same. You know, I read the paper. Like reading the paper on the dunny, reading the paper, yeah. um, reading a book, watching telly or whatever it was, yeah. whatever, outside doing all the things he wanted to do. Um, and whether or not your dad was mucking around in the shed or watering the garden, 
There's not a lot of difference between that and checking his Instagram feed. <laughs> it's so um, that you know, I'd like to see, I'd like to see the boys on the right path, and you know, they're pretty decent sort of little gents anyway. And the, you know, all the what the shrinks will tell you that you got it, you got until up until they're five, and if you don't get it right, they're sort of okay. Yeah, so. Fuck it, it's, it's game on. Or, or they'll also tell you that you know it's all in your um, DNA anyway. How you're going to behave and all, you, or how you're going to be. So nothing you can do can really change that. And there's, you know, it's like demanding of them to say please and thank you, and yeah. it doesn't really matter because there's a point where human beings, unless you know you're so emotionally retarded or you can't get your shit together, you will say learn to say please and thank you because you realise the world won't work for you unless you are polite. Something. Well, that's interesting. Unless yeah. you're Donald Trump, um, but but you know you can drill them in, but then you know sooner or later people will get it anyway. But um, so yeah, I think that that's the major one for me, and um, you know I don't have any great but professional. You know I don't I don't really get that. Oh, I've got a great film in me or whatever. Wouldn't mm. mind writing a good play. Yeah, mate, like. do it. That'd be good. But um, because they're not there's not much to them, is there? 80 pages. I spent the next five minutes trying to convince Rosso to write a play, and I said that I always found plays more fun to write than screenplays because they're not bound by the same story constraints. The film is maths. A screenplay yeah. is maths, whereas a play is a bit more artistic. Well, it's true because, you know, you only know it's over when they turn the lights out. That's right, that's right. <laughs> so it's like, any time it's like, oh, is that it? Okay. If someone gets murdered or someone gets pregnant, yeah. it's all over. Um, um, that would be good. Mate, I'd love you to do a play, and you could do it. You could literally base, you know, base a play on one of your books. Sometimes I look at a play and I go, "Is that a play, or is it an op-ed piece of the New York Times?" Because mm. they can, yeah. Sometimes they're, they're poetry. Sometimes they're just a kind of an opinion piece. Sometimes they're an actual story. But it can be anything. Whereas film, because there's so much money, it actually needs to appeal to everybody. You know, it's very important to get box office. But yeah, if I do a play, I can finally shrug off this private school guilt that I have and just write something really middle class. Yeah, about, that's right. You know, mums at the school. Yeah. Like, you know. Mate, it's so just interesting. Like, you know, really less violent version of Pretty Little Liars. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think that's, I think that's pretty good, actually. I'd encourage you to. Yeah. Um, Anyhow, well, it's not even 80 pages. No. No, play play could be. It just can be an hour long. In fact, that's a good play because you don't want to. You don't want to. I mean, people want to go to the toilet. People. Do you know this real sadness now? Is if you want to get, you, you can't buy planes anymore. You know those old currency. Prices? Yeah, they're not around. So like a- in, in Amazon, they're not. I was trying to buy one for my, means uh, like my second nephew, cousin, something or other. One of those, you know, cousins, 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 kids thing. He's a young actor, and I was going to get him a copy of the removalist and i couldn't find one i'm sure they're on ebay but i that i think if you want them now you download them oh that's really interesting okay so currency's not sending out the plays anymore well of course well, well, it's yeah. probably not a money spinner for an organization <laughs> I can't, I can't. here we go oh we sold 12 copies of the chapel perilous <laughs> <laughs> that's right especially the old the old williamson catalog you yeah. know um i mean um, they're, they're around in in um, plenty of second-hand bookstores, I'm sure. It, it, but I would, I, I think, mate, I'm excited about you doing a play. Okay, we'll put that down. I'm writing a play. 
Um, <laughs> the next question is, I think it's question five. Who is the person who most influenced you and how? Um, both my parents in equal measure. Um, you know, I wish I had a professional mentor. That would have been good. Would have been good to go, you know what, over the years I've spent some serious time with Ray Martin. And Ray uh, told me a few things. I had lunch with Mike Munro once. That was pretty good. Oh, yeah. Mm. I like Mike Munro. Mike. Um, he's misunderstood by the Australian public because he's a great journalistic brain. Yeah, and a really, a real, I've always found him to be a really generous and warm man. Yeah. And we went to this little Italian restaurant um, that he goes to all the time. And uh, he bought a bunch of really good bottles of red and we drank six Peronis before we got into those. And he, I think we're, we're having about that. And the second beer, he goes, is, is this a work thing or is there something you wanted to try and pitch me or we just having lunch? I said, like, we're just having lunch. He goes, that's all right. And then it was fantastic. And he told the war stories and all that sort of stuff. And Because those guys were a different time, and you know. And then ended up back at his joint. And then, you know, and they had to ring my wife. Baby, can you come and pick me up from Mike Munro's place? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he's a guy who's still tippy-tapping, tapping on the typewriter. Yeah, I think he might be using a computer now, but at certainly at that stage. That's and he, and he, had a, he had a wonderful office and um, and his typewriter's there and he's got all the covers of his that he'd have of all the newspapers when he broke all those doors. Yeah. But though, I think, you know, that generation of guys that all went overseas and... Yeah, right, the sixty right. minutes stories with Mike Munro. There's a book uh, called Sixty Minutes, and it was back in written early nineties, and it t- details all of Mike's um, uh, the anger on the road because mm. he had a young family and everything, and he was just wanting to get home. Mm. His whole kind of mo was just to get home, and then of course he got home, and then he hosted a current affair for years. Mm. And I love him, but they um, but those guys when they went away. Um, Oh, you're talking about to do postings? Yeah, the posting stuff. But when they went away for 60 minutes and all that stuff, they used to go away for so long. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. And there was no real thought that, oh, we've got to worry about these guys and girls and their partners and families and stuff. It's like, well, this is the stories. And then you might come back and be back for a day. And then, oh, guess what? You know, you've got to go and interview, you know. Beyond Borg somewhere. <laughs> yeah, totally, mate. Yeah. He was in a, you're in a state of distress. Oh, what, and what they used to do, especially where, when I was a journal, they just pointed at the resume sitting on the desk, just going, if you don't want it. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, and, and it's, it's just the way it was, and it was a tough old game. But no, I wish Mike was, you know, he was, I wish he was more present in my life. And how, um, did, you, how did you orchestrate the dinner or the lunch? When I was doing the breakfast show, he used to come on all the time, and he came in once, and he was wearing this black brown top, gun type leather jacket, and you know it was just fantastic. You know, just a real sort of swagger. Yeah. And you know, this is two thousand four, three, or whatever, and he's got this sort of eighties style jacket on, wearing the aviators, and it's like this is fantastic. Yeah. And so every time he came in, he. Because we'd make a thing about it, he'd always wear the jacket. <laughs> and so I got his, you know, and then I think I got his mobile number or something and texted him and said, you know, we should have a lunch one of these days. And, and we did, and it was good. Not enough of that stuff happens. I love how you um, you find something special about a fashion item and you, and, and, <laughs> and that, that actually did. Yeah, that's it. Because like Matt, Matt Preston, it, was, it wasn't you, like when he was going to the AFIs and he was completely unknown, but he's wearing a pair of white shoes. It's mm, on YouTube. Yes. 
Yeah, and you went, fucking stop, mate. You, yeah, you come here. Yeah. Because he was just a journo for Encore yeah. magazine. Yeah. And you stop you, those yeah. shoes. And then you interviewed him. About, yeah. And he was a great talent. And who? And no, I knows discovered him, yeah. Yeah, he's the biggest star in Australia. But yeah, he was a guy who was always destined to be famous. But yeah, going back to my parents in equal measure, um, uh, I think who just uh, were very, they just, I think they just, would, they just believed in me. Are you the a, youngest? Yeah. Um, and not in an amazing way. Um, not in a, you can do this, but they didn't discourage me. So that, in those days, that's enough. <laughs> I'd like to thank Tim's parents. <laughs> like, yeah, there was... Um, that's great. And you didn't need much, but I, you know, I had this wonderful moment once when mum had written, you know, that she'd been asked to talk about her life for all these... One of these, you know, she'd had some sort of 30-year reunion or something for all her um, colleagues that she studied medicine with and they'd all have to talk about what was going on in their life. And they'd go, oh, yeah. and she'd go I'd done this and she'd done all these amazing things, my mum professionally. Um, and then she said, you know, my son's, you know, electrical engineer and my other son's um, working in banking and finance and, you know, my youngest one is, you know, playing in a band and wants to be a comedian and I think he'll make it. Oh, that's nice. So, you know, she put it out there to her. You know, and that was enough for me. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Uh, question six is, when was the last time you cried and why? Oh, I think, just make, I'll check it on this one. Um, well, I cried when our first son was born and I was wondering whether uh, I'd back up the tears for the second one, you know, because it's a, it's a sad secret with children is that you don't, you know, the first one's, you know, your life stops and the second one, well, it's not as good as the first one. You know, it's a bit like a sequel. Um, <laughs> you know, your second kid's Rambo too. Um, and the, but the second one, I actually pulled Bobby out and I cried at the amazing, you know, the first one I cried because it was amazing because it was a... It's, but the second one, I think, physically pulling him out and then, um, yeah, and I and then I sort of surprised myself that I cried again because uh, I didn't think I'd be as moved. And then he got had to go in the humidity crib for an hour or something, and I sat there, and my, uh, my he was holding on to my little finger, tiny oh. little thing. But this wonderful moment, you know, where he's there, the fucking nurses have got smooth FM on, you know. And all it is is like fucking David Campbell's fucking syrupy smooth <laughs> FM shit going on while I've got my second child and this little our little boy Bobby Arrow's holding on to my thing and I'm like, oh. I'm David Campbell and <laughs> I don't know what your Saturday morning's like. I'm fucking having a child here. Yeah, yeah. David, DC, put away the syrup. <laughs> and it was like, you know, here's the Eagles or whatever it was. Um, but, you know, you can't. Didn't your first obstetrician... Like, wasn't there a change, a late change in your yeah. first obstetrician, I remember? Yeah, so the guy that we'd been along to, and he'd just, we turned up, and essentially, you know, he'd gone fishing. But, like, this is a, he's an obstetrician who was, is never going fishing any time in his life. Yeah, right. And uh, so we ended up, like, so we, that guy we'd been to all the time, and, you know, he'd spent all that serious time looking at my wife's vagina and paying a fortune. And he didn't even show. And we ended up with Dr. Rick, who's the 
this the guy from the Today Show. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's like, I'm looking at this guy and I go, you look familiar. And then I realise, it's like, it's <laughs> Dr. Rick from the Today Show. That's and he's awesome. delivering a baby. And then, and I was like, it's funny, it's as good as Carl Stefanovic being there. And <laughs> there was this, we had this great moment where, you know, we're in between Michelle pushing and we started to sort of, you know, have a bit of a chat and, you know, I'm pushing Michelle's legs sort of skyward. He's, I've got one, she's got one. I'm sort of bracing them with my shoulder. And in, and she's sort of pushing. And then there's a the little break. And then he just says, so what are you up to these days, Rosso? <laughs> and I start talking about my book or whatever. And Michelle, stop fucking talking about your career. I'm trying to have a baby. That's not how she sounds, but that's the voice I put on when I pretend to be my wife. So, yeah. That's awesome, moments. mate. Mm. Question seven, what is your current state of mind? Oh, right now, um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm ecstatic. I haven't seen you for quite some time. Yeah. We had a nice chat. And, you know, you have this, you, you, you I'm, I'm all, I'm always, I, my guard always drops around you. That's good. So you've got, you've got the ability to, to make me say things that I don't want to say. <laughs> um, you know, I was, because of you, I think uh, there was a time when I was on television and I was talking about crying and masturbating at the same time, I think it was. And, you know. That's right. On Agony Uncles, the question was, how do you deal with the grief of a failed relationship? Wanking and alcohol, crying, sometimes at the same time. My then teenage sister was watching that with my father and, you know, it was an interesting way to find out that... <laughs> crying <laughs> And then you just sort of... and because, I mean, that's the beauty of, the, you know, that wonderful series that you made was that um, you did get us to spill um, and talk about things in a really personal way. And if you'd, if we'd had time to think about it or, mm. you know, maybe maybe we were a bit more, especially especially with the first one, you had no idea. So, you know, you have an ability, and this is my, you know, ability to make people um, feel very calm and you engage, you're interested and interesting, Adam. The perfect house guest. <laughs> the perfect person at a dinner party to have. Can tell a great story, but also listen to a good story. Yeah, well, I do enjoy your stories, mate, yeah. I've got to say. Uh, yeah, so, you know, you see, you're stroking my ego now. You see, <laughs> that, well, how, how do I feel? I feel like Adam's doing his Jedi fucking mind trick on me to make me feel a million dollars. He's very good at it. <laughs> no, you should feel a million dollars, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, question eight is what do you consider your greatest achievement, Rosso? Hmm. I remember seeing this. Um, I'm trying to remember, and she's ma- married to. I'm trying to remember the actress's name. Doesn't really matter. But she. I remember her being in an interviewed, and they said, "You know, what's your greatest achievement?" And she said, "I should say my children, but the reality is, it's my career." And I thought about that, and I thought, "Can you imagine how you?" her kids would feel mm-hmm. maybe they don't care um <laughs> so yeah i think um the boys are great i think um i i get a lot of strength from I'm, i'll be married for 10 years next year oh yeah oh well done mate. and so you know and i have a great relationship and it's not it's never been perfect and but, you know, it gets better with age and I love that about relationships and I love that sort of, 
how adversity makes you stronger. Um, yeah, yeah. And becoming a family unit, I suppose, I, I, I really like. Um, and so, yeah, and I, I think, especially watching my wife, she took a back seat for lot, in lots of ways for things that I've done, particularly, you know, when I was doing breakfast radio and whatever and I was working weird hours and she was working long hours. and So she, she stopped what she was doing. She had a really successful career and she did something else. And I was really uncomfortable with it at the time. And then... This year, and I, was, I had my book launch, and she didn't even know it was on, and she still hasn't read it. And I like that because she's too busy. There's enough yeah. going on with her stuff. And the other day, I came home, and she was pretending to read it in bed. But it doesn't matter. And I think because <laughs> I, I like something. There's something I like about this nice sort of nice transition between her. The boys are older now, and she's getting into doing what she does with it, with with her clothes and fashion design. And it's going really well, and, and she's really fulfilled by it, which is more important than anything else. And so I think for me, um, and also from a selfish point of view, is I want it to go really well. So I, as my career sort of peters off, um, at, but the school fee ratio gets higher, um, <laughs> she, she can pick up the slack. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I think kids are great, your career's whatever, Um I, I, from a career point of view, I suppose, um, truly being able to do the things that I love, and I, I, yeah, I always yeah. talk about it in my live show, and I'm not in. I always say I'm not into quotes, motivational quotes. You know, I hate those people who put shit on their Instagram feeds. I've got this mate who's personal trainer, and he put this quote in one day, and it's like you know, um, sweat is your fat crying. You know, you go, oh, Jesus, you know, it's not true. <laughs> we all know that's that's just your body's way of telling you, you need a glass of tang. But, <laughs> but there's a, Ames, a Demetrius, who's the son of Charles and Ray Ames, one of my favourite um, uh, furniture designers, and he had this great quote, which is, take your pleasure seriously. Um, he gave me a book with the quotes, and and I like that idea that you the things that you love, you give, you give them the respect that they deserve. Yeah, yeah. So we, what happens, you know, is that we often we fall into the jobs that we thought we were never going to have and you end up thinking you're going to be there for a year and you end up 10, 15 or your whole life. Or the things that you love, you stop doing. You know, I always see these people who go, oh, I used to play the piano, but I don't anymore. I don't paint anymore. I really like writing, but I don't write. Um, and our guilty secret is always that we love our jobs more than we give them credit. We give ourselves credit. You know, we are addicted to them. So, but we don't give that same respect to those things that we love. Mm. So I love like this idea of you know you take your pleasure seriously and the things that you love you, you give them the respect they deserve. And for me, my, rolling around in architecture and design and the arts, I suppose, um, is very different to what I was doing when commercial TV, commercial radio. Yeah. But it in terms of people that I meet, in, t- in terms of what I do and what I create, it's far more fulfilling. I bet. And I'm. Being able to have um, a friend of mine who's an actor said, you know, essentially said, you know, you, you're really lucky you got a second act with your well, career. Um, you and, do. And, and they're so distinctly different. The skill base is all the same. And I still like telling stories and like telling jokes and all that sort of stuff. But I've been really, really lucky. And I, and I couldn't have done it in a different time. Like if you... No. In, it's a time where you can actually change gears and change what you do like i meant to try and before social media trying to tell people well you know that you know you only have to go through youtube and see me with half the shit i've done and you'd go what the 
hang on a second. And so now this guy talking about yeah. architecture and design. And I you know, and I was early on when I was trying to get people overseas to engage with what the amount about the house show was. We would do the show on architecturally significant houses. It was nothing about it online in terms of its Google history. And so they would go, get online and there'd be some, you know, sketch with me with my shirt off doing a home and away sketch and, <laughs> or swearing or whatever it was. And I don't get this. We've Googled and, you know. Um, but this time you can, you can, I think people sort of worked out that I'm, I was just really into it. So the word is is the how long did it take for the word to get f- fully through the design and architecture community that you were the real deal as opposed I, to it was quicker than I thought it was going to be right. and I was quite nervous about it um, and then I went to it was mostly through Instagram and then later with Streets of Your Town but of course um, yep. but even before then I once I'd started doing the shows um, they quite quickly came on board and I went to an event and someone said to me, I said, well, what, do, what do the architects think about? I go, they really like it because you're a different voice in terms of yeah, being an advocate for good design. Um, and so they've been really supportive in terms of coming to shows and um, inviting me things and new friends that I've made. And, and it's a disproportionately high number of architects actually end up being comedy writers, so... Yeah, really? Well-known comedy professionals who either studied architecture or were actual architects include Weird Al Yankovic, Jeffrey Atherton, creator of Mother and Son, Graham Bond, creator of The Auntie Jack Show, and, of course, the legendary political comedian Rod Quantock. They collect- collectively, they get a bit weird, but individually, they're wonderful. And Kit and I always say, can I say, oh, we can always tell, you know, when there's... um. There's, it's a room full of architects because none of them are laughing. But they will laugh individually. But there's something about putting them together. They can get a bit dull and worthy. But, um, yeah, yeah, right. They're a really strange, really strange bunch of people. And they, some of them get things and some of them don't. And I was doing a, I was doing a book launch for a friend of mine who's an architect, a good architect, a really good architect. And he's got this event, a really amazing building. And he's got great catering and they've got all these extraordinary models of his career and all that stuff there. And I'm, and they've got no music playing. Ah, uh, gotcha. And, and that, to me, that was really interesting in the mind of the architect that you're thinking all about the visuals and then you're not yeah. thinking about the party. So you've got your showbiz, you're in it. Yeah, although, you know, I'm you just know. an old, you know, <laughs> singing and dancing guy. But I was like, yeah. wow, um... Yeah, yeah it makes sense, mate. And I need that, but he, like literally, he just wouldn't have gone there in his mind. No, but if you mentioned it to him, he probably would have thought it was a good idea. No, not even then. All right. Thought, What's wrong with this? Why isn't this room working? Why isn't uh, this? Because it's fascinating. But like, it's the same thing, and like at the same function. And I'd gone into the bathroom. I thought I was, you know, I was nervous about what to what I was going to say, and I'm there, and I'm a little piece of paper, and. Whenever I do things, I always prep, but I always change at the last minute because the room always changes. It's in your mind. You can't you can't visualise the room. No. So, and the worst thing you do is just stay on target. So you write something and then you go, ah, uh-uh, this is not going to work. And so I'm there and, and I'm so I'm sitting in the dunny in the disabled toilets there at this building. And now I'm sitting there, you know, pants around my ankles. And I was trying to work it out. It's taken forever. No, no, no. And because I've been there so long, the automatic door started opening. 
which was literally starting to open right onto where everyone was gathering for the party. Holy fuck. And I had to pull up my pants and quickly hit the button because it had some sort of panic door. Of course, That's just bloody architecture. Fat, yeah, too, the, so. yeah, high-tech kind of yeah, disabled toilet. Very embarrassing. Um, is there a good architecture joke that you, that never fails? Not a do um, Oh, no, I do this one, actually. The only one I ever do is I say, um, yeah, people always ask me, you know, Tim, what it's like, you know, what do you talk to when you're in, you know, like I went to Venice, the architecture being early, and it's all architects, you know. And says, you know, what do you, what do you talk about? You know, there's not one of the architects. That, you know, what, you know, what do you talk about when you're when it's just a room full of architects? And I say the same thing that you guys do. Talk about myself. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, that's pretty. That's that's about as close as I get to in terms to architecture jokes. Just some context. Tim's Mad About the House show is comedy and storytelling from Tim and music from his best mate, Kit Warhurst. And all the shows are performed exclusively in architecturally significant buildings. I first saw the show at the Robin Boyd House in South Yarra and it's one of my favourite nights of theatre ever. Since then, Tim and Kit have performed the show in the US, New Zealand and London and it's been listed as a must-see event by the New York Times. It's a good experience most of the time. Um... Yeah, it's um, it's 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 really it's been really challenging as a performer. It's really been good for me because you, there's small rooms, literally. Yeah. You know, and sometimes we've done thirty people in a room or twenty yeah. sometimes because that's all we can fit. And really, it's really confronting, and they're really like this. You can see them the whole time. I was doing this show in the in this apartment uh, in London earlier on this year, and. We always get people who buy tickets but don't show because they buy them, you know, a long way out. Right. And then you might lose six people out of a show and you've only got 45 in there and it's a lot of empty seats suddenly. And we're doing the show um, and Trellick Tower, it's a famous brutalist tower in in London. And this guy's got got to let us into his little apartment and someone had bought eight tickets and they, they didn't show. And, like, sometimes you overbook, like, it's an airline just... But when you lose almost a, a, a you know it's almost a quarter of your yeah, audience, yeah. Type of stuff, it like it makes a mess of it because you just a you lose the laughter, but you've got all these empty, empty chairs, and everyone thinks, oh god, you can't even fill this yeah. fucking room. So we're doing the show, and there's this guy with sort of crazy white hair and these colourful glasses sitting in the front row, and of course you can see everyone. It's it's two o'clock in the afternoon, like you can see who's laughing, who's yawning, who's and this guy's barely looking at me, not laughing the whole time. He's looking at the books. He's looking at, looking around the room the whole time, him and his wife, in their mid-50s. And I was like, oh, Jesus. But something about him was familiar. I was like, I was like I'm sure I've seen this guy somewhere. But anyway, and as soon as the show finished, Kit and I finished doing a little, 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 little song, thanks a lot. He, he rushes to the table to buy my book, Kit's album, and a poster, or two posters. Bought everything we possibly could. And I was like, this is weird. And I, as they were leaving, I was just, it's, yeah, it's good to see you again. We come over from Switzerland to see you. Um, and we came last time. We flew all the way last time to see you when you were at the other Goldfinger residence. It's very good. You should come to Switzerland and do the show. I was like, no fucking way. I'm going to Switzerland if there's going to be 50 of you in the <laughs> You humorless fucks. But you, that's that thing with it. It's like, Holy you cannot. Con- yeah. 
And I try, and because you can see your whole audience, you, the paranoid performer in you will look at the whole audience and go, oh, God, you're trying to second guess who's going to be in it. And same thing, right, this bloody... No, processing is different. Yeah, yeah. him looking around. Is yeah, it's just, it's just yeah. you know, um, the Swiss don't have a great sense of humour, apparently. Yeah, no, yeah. They're right there next to the Germans. It makes yeah. sense that some things, you know. Um, but, you know, I, and I'll do it too. And, like, we're at the BT Tower in London and everyone buys tickets to see the tower because you can't go up the top. Yeah, So yeah, it's, right. it's the perfect venue. The venue does all the heavy lifting for us. Yeah. Sells out straight away because the Londoners all want to go up. And so a lot of the time you've literally got people coming for the venue and then you've got to convince them that you're okay. Yeah. And we're about to start the show and at, at, at um, Interval you revolve the restaurant around. So, but when, you, when you're doing the show, everyone's sitting there and sort of weird semicircle type situation. And there's this guy around the corner and he's sitting there, you know, having a pint and eating nuts and not wanting to come and sit down. And, you know, and I was like, oh, no, Kip, we've got to get this guy to come and sit down. And we'd run out of seats. And, and he sort of drags over the this couch and puts it on the side. And I thought, oh, fuck, he's just going to, he's going to just be like, oh, this is going to be a nightmare. He's going to he's gonna not laugh and, you know, just do my head in about this stuff. Anyway, from the get-go, he's laughing his head off. He's, like, literally slapping his thigh. He's like, ah. <laughs> awesome. And the same thing. He'd been the year before, and this time he'd come back with his daughters and everyone. And I thought that this was a guy that was just here to check out the view. So it's so, it's sort of, it never gets easier in terms of the mental it's game so between his audience. It's like, and that's a really, that's a real lesson for, that's a lesson for real life. It's like when that person, oh, that person didn't give me much, you know, that person was a bit rude to me. Not necessarily. Nah. <laughs> you know? You know, and that's, yeah, yeah. And, and all those, and it's no different to those, you know, you see it all the time, you know, the people with, Selling cars or selling art, you know, the old judge a book by a cover. You just don't. Know. Yeah. He's going to be into it. And, Fuck. You know. That's so interesting. Oh, what, so an, what an amazing experience. Um, question nine, who would you want on your side in a battle and why? I always say that you couldn't go past Kyle Sandilands for this because the guy is bulletproof. Yeah. And, you know, and I just worked with him and against him over the years. Mm. And, and all those... It's like Teflon. It's sort of um, there's something Trump-esque about him. I yeah. Think. Um, it's he has just been able to fend it all off and keep going and stokes the flames. Yeah, and then, and then um, steps away. It's a tap dancer. Yeah, and he trying to beat him was always tricky because you couldn't, you can't, unless you want to become that person, you can't compete. So they're saying, yeah. yeah, do you want to, you got to be outrageous or do all that or be that person? You know, no, I don't want to be that person. No. No. He doesn't want to be who I am, I'm sure, you know. Um, that shock jockey type stuff. Yeah, and, You know, yeah. somebody puts on, somebody doesn't. But, yeah, and there has never been anyone else like him and there never will, I don't think, you know. No. Like, there's a real, literally doesn't care. Yeah. It's, it's and, there's a, and there's a real, no, extraordinary confidence. And Australia uh, has accepted him more and more, I find. You know, like, you know, the outrage in, in the early 2000s was constant outrage. Mm. He kind of, he, we all went through that um, as, a, as a listening public and just as a public in general. And then, and now you just, you've come to terms with the fact, oh, yeah, that's just Kyle. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know? and that's it. And that's the way it should be. And I mean, yeah. I always think, and he's, and I don't put him in the same, because politically he doesn't sit in the same realm as the shock jocks. And It's funny because it's hard to actually pinpoint where he does sit. Well, he changes his mind all the time. Yeah. You know, you, but but he's not really that. He doesn't, and his awareness is so limited for that stuff. Yeah. Politically, just not really. It's not really, no. that's not the pool he plays in. Yeah. So it's more no. about. Social kind yeah. of things, isn't it? And most of the time that stuff that really, how shocking really is it? I yeah. don't know, the outrage of it. You know, there's more people, there's more people to get upset about now than there was when he was upsetting everyone seven, eight years ago or That's 10 years ago, right. 12 years ago. But, yeah, like, I think that getting upset because people do things really well for a living. Here we talked about how some of Australia's greatest controversialists are nothing more than paid pantomime villains whose job it is to stir up audience reactions. And Rosso said he'd gone to multiple media events where people who are meant to be ideological opposites stand next to each other having a beer and a laugh. They're all there and supposedly you'd think they'd be hating each other and, you know. I have to sit in a green room with each other before they go on Q&A. Yeah, I've seen them at events, like social gatherings, where you go, hang on a second, I, you know, and then people who have been suing people, or whatever, yeah. it's like, whoa, this, if everyone saw this, you know, don't do this. This, yeah. is, this, is breaking, this is breaking the magic of, you know, you guys hating each other. And I think that's an interesting thing that Twitter did, which was Twitter showed that people found it really strange that, you know, Lee Sales would be having conversations with Melissa Hoyer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they go, oh, that's not... She's not supposed to like those people. Yeah. She's only going to live in a world where she only talks to people who work at the APC. That's then, it. <laughs> Can I say that because I'm from North Queensland, Townsville's two greatest products are Carl Sandilands and Julian Assange. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Um, says something about the North. It does too, doesn't it? The last question, mate, is what would you like your last words to be? Ah, oh, very simple. Pick the cheap coffin. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Uh. <laughs> you hear that, boys? That's what Daddy wants. All right, mate, that's <laughs> perfect. Don't, don't sell the art. <laughs> Pick the cheap coffin. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two. All engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. 